everyone. It's Kevin here from Skywatcher, and good morning and happy Friday to you. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Skywatcher What's Up webcast, where we check out all things astronomy, from what's up in the nighttime sky, to observing techniques, to astrophotography, to equipment stuff, or pretty much whatever we feel like because it's our webcast. So that's just how that works. Um, so thank you all for joining us again. Um, if this is the first time you've ever joined us, we do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific time, right here on the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Um, and each week is a different topic. Um, that way, if there's something you want to learn about or something that we may have covered that you want to go back and check out, um, we do record these even though this is live right now, but every week is a new topic. And of course, if you ever want to actually um, try and, if there's something you want us to basically cover, uh, you can always email us at our support at skywatcherusa.com email and title it What's Up, and we will be happy to uh, take a look at any topic that you might uh, be interested in, and we'll, uh, we'll take a look at it. Um, so this of course, um, this week we're talking about none other than the red planet Mars. Um, anybody who's been into astronomy or has been out observing lately has obviously kept up with the, the planet as it's making its way into the evening sky. And it's putting on quite a good show this year. I've been observing it over the last couple weeks, kind of preparing uh, for this presentation, as well as just kind of going out and enjoying uh, the views of various telescopes. So I'm hoping that uh, this week, or I'm sorry, in this uh, presentation that some of you will get some ideas on how to observe and photograph Mars and we'll learn a little bit about um, how the planets and stuff like that can be viewed and when to view them and so on and so forth. So um, we're going to get started. If you have any questions, I'll try to get to them throughout the, uh, the presentation, but of course, uh, if you could save those till the end, uh, we do a small Q&A at the end of all the videos. And of course, if you miss anything, these are recorded, so you can always go back and watch them. And uh, finally, if you do like watching these and you want to be kept up to date with all the upcoming episodes or any new content that we throw up, you can go uh, find us and subscribe to the channel here. That's the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel, and we appreciate having you here for our weekly webcasts. So, thank you very much. So, this week we're obviously trying to understand the red planet, and Mars is one of those planets that I think draws a lot of um, interest from people, whether you're just getting started in astronomy or you know nothing about astronomy at all. Um, obviously, throughout pop culture, uh, Mars has really brought a lot to the table. You know, we've got, you know, movies like The Martian or comedies and what have you, uh, like Mars Attacks. All kinds of things like that have been inspired by the Red Planet. And um, as someone who does a lot of outreach um, out in the pub, well, normally, when the world's not all weird at the moment... Um, Mars is one of those planets that people just have uh, an inherent curiosity about. And, of course, every other year or so, we get the chance to actually observe the planet. And that is one of those years here in 2020. Of course, a time that we can't really share it with too many people uh, publicly. So, 
if you're at home or if you've just gotten one of your first telescopes, now is the time to get out there and start uh, observing Mars. But not just Mars, we also have Saturn, Jupiter, um, I believe Neptune's up there somewhere as well. Uh, I don't think it's too far from Mars. I think that's right. Um, but anyway, uh, Mars is definitely the showcase object right now, and uh, we're going to talk about why. So the first thing we need to talk about is understanding opposition and what that, well, first, what does that mean and why that's important? So right now, Mars is at what is known opposition. It's not quite there, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, Mars comes to opposition every two years and two months um, for Earth. So what does that actually mean? Well, opposition um, is when a celestial object, normally a celestial object within the solar system, is, uh, I'm sorry, opposite the sun from Earth's position. So that looks something like this. So of course you have the sun, and you have the Earth, and then you have Mars. So, or any planet whatsoever, or asteroid, or comet, or whatever it might be, it is, that is how opposition works. It's when the the object of interest is exactly opposite the sun from our position. So that's opposition. And that generally means when it's at it's almost close approach to us as well. So that is the time that we want to get out and uh, take a look at it. And for all of my scientific people out there, I do understand this is not to scale. That's okay. It's just a basic model. Um, I just had to throw that in there because I do know I have some friends out there that would poke fun at me for it not being to scale. Um, so during opposition, this is generally the best time that we want to get out and observe those objects. And that's generally when it's closest to us. We can get the most detail out of it. It's the best time to see that object. And right now in opposition is Mars. And now is the time to get out and take a look at it over the next couple weeks. I would like to say all the planets and such have oppositions as well. Um, so, but right now it's just Mars. So opposition 2020, why is it so important? Um, actual opposition of Mars is actually October 13th. That's on Monday. And it's going to give us a disk size of 22.6 arc seconds, um, which is relatively good size, actually. It's bigger than Jupiter um, right now. So that gives you, um, wait, no, it's uh, brighter than Jupiter. I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, it is, it is very good size right now um, to actually uh, take a look at that. So... Uh, the closest approach that Mars had was actually this this week on October 6th, so that's when it was closest to Earth, but the actual opposition when it's opposite um, the Sun is on the 13th. And of course, right now it's a, a negative 2.6 magnitude, so it's at, that's what I meant to say earlier. It's brighter than Jupiter is right now, so which is relatively... Uh, um, interesting but it's a uh, it just shows you how bright it is right now because Jupiter obviously is generally the brightest um, thing in the nighttime sky other than Venus and the moon um, at the moment so the fact that Mars is much brighter um, 
is just shows you how good of a year it is to actually see the planet so and of course it's in the uh right now jupiter is at negative 2.2 magnitude and of course uh, mars is in the constellation of pisces so you can actually see mars rising in the eastern sky right around I think it actually breaks the horizon just after eight o'clock but it's not usually high enough and out of your neighbor's tree and whatever that whatever's going on and ready to view till probably somewhere around 9 9 30 that's usually for me at least that's when it's been high enough to start really uh jumping on it by the mid evening however um it is high enough to really start getting good views and if you want to stay up late uh, moving to midnight or just after midnight mars is very very high um, in the sky at least here in uh, north america where that's really going to be the best time to get your your views of the planet where it sits nice and high um, up in that uh, up in the sky in the constellation of pisces so it's definitely worth a uh, especially this weekend if you've got nothing going on you know definitely bring out the telescope and go check it out so just to kind of understand it let's look at the future uh oppositions of mars um this is what mars is going to be looking like over the next several years uh, like i said opposition occurs every two years and two months so uh for scale over here these are to scale actually uh every 10 pixels equals an arc second so this is actually to scale um of what we're uh going to be experiencing over the next couple of years um, and yes i did put that in there so uh, right now um during opposition here we're at 22.6 arc seconds i should have put um the 2003 close approach that's when it was at its largest i don't remember what that was but it was it, it'll never be that big in our lifetime um but right now uh, we're at 22.6 arc seconds that's a fairly good size and you can see that this compared to the next several years, um, just how good that actually is. So um, in 2022, we're going to get another uh, pass uh, opposition of Mars. That's only going to be 17.2 arc seconds. So it's going to be a, a bit smaller um, than what we're at now. And then, of course, as we move through 2024, 2027, and 2029, as well as 2031, those years are going to be relatively small. Um, so you're still going to get some good views of it, but it's not going to be as large and close to us as it is how it's been the last couple of years for us. So uh, this year, it's definitely the time to get your telescope out, take a look at it, uh, because it because of how large the planet actually does show up, it's definitely worth checking out right now because we're not going to be at this size um, until, you know, about 2033. So... And we're not going to get any better than that until 2035. So, um, so that's definitely what you want to take a look at there. So it is now time to definitely get out and take a look at it. Um, someone did mention in the chat, 2003 was 25.11 arc seconds. Um, so in 2035, we're gonna we're gonna get a show um, again, but we obviously have to wait. 15 years uh, before that happens um, so if you want something that's anywhere close to that um, now is the time to get out there and look at it so um, do not wait definitely get out there if you don't have a telescope try to figure something out um, 
yeah, just figure something out. So the next thing from there, however, is, well, how do we go and look through it? Or look through it, I'm sorry, look at it. Um, there's a lot of different things that we can do when observing Mars and photographing Mars. And I've been trying different techniques, different telescopes, different equipment over the last couple uh, weeks so I could actually talk uh, from experience from this uh, as well. So I, when I'm doing a webcast like this, uh, there's a lot of research that goes into it. And I don't really like talking about something that I don't have firsthand experience or knowledge of. So anything you see here, um, I've taken the time to either go out and do or I've already done or played with or what have you. Um, but I want to make sure that the information I'm giving you is the most legitimate hands-on experience possible. Um, so just try to put that out there. So definitely get out there. Um, over the next couple weeks, Mars is going to be large enough to where, you know, any telescope will give you a decent view of it. Um, but this is definitely the year to check it out because as you can see over the next, uh, I don't know, 10 years, we're not going to get anything that's as good. Everything will still be impressive in a nice telescope, but um, this year it just makes it easier uh, with that large scale right there. And we won't have anything near or at near or better until 2033 or 2035 so it's going to be 13 to 15 years before you could actually get out and get a, a view this good uh, that's going on right now so so observing mars that's exactly what this whole topic is about so uh, we're going to kind of dig into some details about that right there so like i said earlier any telescope will work um, the more aperture, the better, if you can handle that. Um, more aperture is obviously going to give you the ability to resolve finer details and see all those cool little things on there. But if you don't have uh, access to a major telescope, you know, even a small telescope does a very nice job on it. So uh, it's better than not seeing anything at all. Uh, generally, if you can get the magnification up to at least 100x, uh, that's where things start to get interesting. 70x, from my experience, has been okay. Um, but if you can get up to 100 or more, that's where your image scale becomes large enough to where things become more interesting. So uh, definitely worth uh, checking that out. Of course, uh, anything that has to do with planets is going to require good seeing conditions. Um, the better the conditions, the better. And what I mean by that, uh, because a lot of people assume that seeing conditions has something to do with the darkness of the sky, and it doesn't. It has nothing to do with the darkness of the sky. You can be in the middle of town, and the seeing conditions can be awesome. Um, darkness is only one aspect of what makes astronomy and viewing good. Um, the big, big thing with planets has nothing to do with darkness. Uh, the planets are not even affected much by light pollution, if at all, because they are so bright, um, except when you get to the faint, faint stuff. But everything from Neptune to Mercury um, is not really affected so much by light pollution. So saying I can't get out because there's too much light pollution, there's no excuse at this point. The planets are completely fair game in town. Uh, excuse me. Um, so what do I mean by good seeing conditions? Uh, seeing conditions is basically the stability of the nighttime sky. 
Um, there are websites like Clear Sky Clock, and um, there's some other ones out there that will actually tell you how good your seeing conditions are going to be. And the more stable your seeing is going to be, that means you know not a lot of wind in the upper atmosphere, not a lot of particles and smoke in the atmosphere, which right now in the U.S. is it's just a mess. Um, but having good, stable seeing conditions with nice transparency um, is going to give you the ability to actually maximize how much you can magnify the planet as well as how stable of an image you can get. So for example, um, if you're using two telescopes and one of them's in a location that is in a very good seeing location and the other one's in a kind of meh, mediocre seeing, the one in the good seeing, you'll be able to actually push the magnification higher because there's not as much turbulence occurring in the atmosphere, light scatter and what have you. Um, that'll be able to give you a more crisp image while still maintaining that magnification, whereas something small or something in a, a, seeing a site with lesser conditions, you're not going to get as sharp of an image. So good seeing conditions are are very much a plus in when we're observing or imaging planets. Um, the use of filters can also help, especially on certain seeing and seeing certain details on the planet. We're going to have a whole section of that here shortly on, you know, what filters I found out of my collection, what actually worked well, and on what size of scope, and yada yada yada. So um, we'll go over all of that. So real quick here, just we're going to kind of do a rundown on the basic details we can see on Mars. Um, Mars has tons of geographic. Uh, uh, very interesting geographic areas on it. Um, but I just kind of want to break this down into very bare bones um, descriptions because a lot of times you're not going to see certain details visually. Maybe if you're imaging and you've got certain uh, good scene conditions, you'll be able to resolve some of the more finer details on the planet. But if you're just going out and viewing, this is kind of just the bare basics of that. So, um, First off, we have the southern ice cap. This is visible right now. Um, it's the small little white spot that's on the, it's actually on the bottom of the planet. Um, but that is the southern cap, followed by the northern pole. Um, the northern pole from the orientation um, this year can't really be seen too much, but there's also been a lot of clouds over those regions. So these white areas right here, um, those are clouds. Um, I have not really seen the clouds visually in the telescopes I've been using, um, but some of the images that I've shot and, of course, uh, the people here who've been very gracious on providing their um, images for our presentation today, um, they have captured clouds as well. So those can actually be seen more as a, uh, as a feature of your imaging. Uh, of course, the one major area is Arabia Terra, which is this large, basically like desert plains area. This is actually very easy to see um, in even a moderate sized telescope with some decent magnification, mainly because it's just a big, bright orange area um, where the dark details um, do not uh, cover. Now, of course, I say dark surface detail, that, that's kind of vague uh, because all that dark surface area has its own geographical names as well but a lot of times you're not going to have the resolution to basically pin 
you know, like on the moon, he could be like, this crater is this, and this mare is this, and blah, blah, blah. Um, a lot of times you're not going to be able to actually identify each particular region um, unless you have a detailed map of Mars and you kind of know what you're looking at. So for that, we're just talking about dark surface detail, just kind of hands over that. Now, if you've got, you know, better equipment, larger equipment, and you have really good scene conditions like our good friend Christopher Go has, um, which very few of us have as good scene conditions as Chris, um, you can obviously catch Olympus Mons, which is the largest volcano in the solar system, and uh, Valles Marineris, which is really hard to see in his image over here, but you can just start to kind of make out kind of the region that that would sit um, in right there, and there's some other volcanoes and regions around there. So um, there's a lot of really cool geographical features on Mars. If you're seeing is good enough and you can maintain it, then there's some cool stuff that you can see, but those are kind of the basic details that we're looking for. And my head is in way. There we go. Um, now you guys can see that real quick uh, there. But so those are basically the details that we're going to be looking for. Um, what you're seeing right here is more if you've got a higher resolution system and the seeing to do it. Uh, moving back here real quick. Um, most of what we're going to be looking at through our our telescopes is going to be what you're seeing on the screen uh, right here again uh, this is the majority of what you're going to be looking for southern ice cap dark surface detail arabia terra uh, northern pole with clouds and of course if you've seen conditions are good enough and you can get it up there um, you can actually start to see some of the uh, clouds in the atmosphere there so it's pretty interesting mars is a really cool planet to look at just because it's it's constantly changing so um, definitely worth uh, getting out so let's continue on let's talk about magnification really quick so like I said earlier you want to try to achieve a magnification of at least 100x on your telescope if possible um, if not more your seeing conditions are going to dictate um, how much magnification is going to be used that night but don't be a don't be afraid to push the magnification you know i've, I've met people who are like oh no you you can't push that high it, it's just no you can't it's like the fabric of the space-time continuum is going to rip apart if you push your magnification too high um if the magnification is too high the image is going to look soft just back it down you know try it until it looks good um on the telescopes I've been working with, I've been able to push past 200x uh, for the most part. It still does a nice job, um, but everything, again, is going to be dictated by the seeing conditions. You're just going to have to work with what each night is going to provide. Of course, give your telescope some time to acclimate, especially if you keep it inside. Um, you know, give it, give it a good... 30 minutes to cool off. If you've got like a big Maxitoff Cassegrain or a Schmidt Cassegrain or something like that, you know, open up the back, let it cool off for an hour, go get dinner, let Mars rise a little higher. And, you know, that'll also help with letting the telescope acclimate um, to the outside air. If you've got fans on it, you know, run the fans, get that cooled down, but do everything you can to really get the best images that you can uh, from your telescope. So either you know, the seeing conditions are going to be the ultimate judge of what you're going to be able to do that night. 
but allowing your telescope to cool down and acclimate is going to be the, uh, the second most important thing there. And then that'll really allow you to push it um, to the magnifications that you want to achieve, which right now, like I said, a minimum of 100x. Um, if you can go over 200, I've found that's where the best images have been occurring on most telescopes. Um, and if you're seeing and the telescope allows, you know, progress farther. Um, but yeah, if it looks soft, just back it down. You know, take the Barlow out, go to a different focal length. It's if it looks like crap, just switch it out and move to something else. Like it's not not difficult. Uh, filters. I love playing with filters. Filters, I think, are one of the coolest little things that we use in astronomy because of what they can do with an image. So I have been playing with all kinds of filters um, this week just to kind of see what's what. And there was some surprising observations with it. Um, of course, a wide variety of filters can be used on, on Mars and the planets. And of course, the first thing that comes to mind are color filters. Um, I don't use color filters too much anymore, but if you've got one of those eyepiece kits that you got, or if you've got some color filters laying around, you know, maybe now's the time to pop them out and give them a shot. Um, some filters that are really popular uh, for Mars are the number 12 yellow. Uh, those are that for like atmospheric clouds that can be helpful. Uh, number 25 red that brings out like the Mara or ice cap regions on Mars. So that's that can be a nice filter. Uh, number 56 green can do dust storms and ice caps. And then you've got one of the most popular ones is number 82A, the light blue, which is good for polar caps and surface detail. Um, we have a whole uh, webcast about visual filters where we actually talk about colors. Um, color filters, so you can go back and check that one out if, if you'd like it. We talk about the numbers and all that stuff. So. Um, I haven't spent much time with the color filters. Uh, I feel like they're a fun way of getting started, but I feel like there are better filters out there that kind of achieve better details while still maintaining the color. Uh, the big thing I don't like about color filters is they offshift the color of the planet. You know, if you put a blue filter, the whole field's blue. If you put the red in there, everything's red. And it's, when it comes to planets, it's just not my thing. So. I like using filters that don't affect the color as much. So those I throw into the specialty filter catalog. Um, my first one, this is like my go-to planetary filter for anything, is the Botter Neodymium, or uh, they call it the Moon and Sky Glow filter as well. I really like this filter, um, especially if you're using on larger telescopes. Uh, you got a nice refractor. Um, I've used this on refractors up to seven inch in diameter for planets. It does a really nice job on Jupiter. It gets rid of the kind of the annoying outer glare, not the chromatic aberration. I guess it could help, but these are on APO refractors. But it gets rid of the outer glare a little bit more so your eye's not distracted as much. And it kind of reduces um, the glare of the planet while helping pop out some of the, the cloud bands. That's for Jupiter in particular, but for Mars, um, it's done a nice, done a similar uh, feature as well, kind of popping out the, the darker areas a little bit. The ice caps come out on the larger telescopes a little bit more. Um, and I find this one works particularly well on telescopes six inch and under. Um, at least that's just my observation for observing Mars um, has been the Botter Neodymium or Botter Neodymium 
moon and sky glow filter is the whole name of it um what's also nice about that filter is it's like a really light uh light pollution filter so i like using it because it's a multi-role filter it's not just for planets it works really good on the moon works really good on the planets and when i just need a little kick um, for knocking down light pollution it's a nice filter for that as well they make it an inch and a quarter and two inch so um, but it's not too expensive and it's a nice filter to have in the kit now my personal favorite that i've been using a lot lately is the botter contrast booster i actually feel like the neodymium filter and the contrast booster are two filters that should be in your set constantly um, because they i feel they do complement one another quite nicely uh, the contrast booster I find has been very helpful with Mars, particularly on larger aperture, like six inch and above. Um, it really helps pop out the ice caps. The dark detail really pops. It reduces the glare. Um, it helps with the orange tone a little bit more of the planet. Um, so that's the Botter contrast booster. Uh, also works really nice for deep sky stuff as well. I almost like to think of it as a UHC light uh, filter. But uh, those are my two go-to planetary filters. Highly recommend them for just about everything. Um, so I don't use color filters anymore. I use these two and they really fit the bill for everything I've been doing. Um, so I, I really like those a lot. Now, the nice thing with having a bunch of filters laying around is you should try experimenting with filters. You know, just because I told you to do it doesn't mean you know, you shouldn't try some other stuff. I was speaking to a good friend of mine who is actually observing Mars with his Oxygen 3 filter and found it to do quite well. Um, I tried it. it. It didn't do what I was expecting for it. But uh, the filter that did surprise me the most was my UHC or ultra high contrast. Um, this is a filter um, that many of us probably have in our kit. Um, it's generally for deep sky observing, um, popping out details and helping reduce light pollution and helping with nebulas and all that fun stuff. But the, the UHC did a very, very nice job at greatly improving the dark surface details on the planet. Now, you do want to have a larger aperture scope when using the UHC because it does cut a lot of light out. Um, so I'll tell you what I was using that on. Um, so that's something that I was pleasantly surprised while experimenting that the UHC filter did a very, very nice job. Um, I, like I said earlier, I would reserve this for telescopes about 150 millimeter or larger. So if you've got a UHC and you've got like a 10 inch daub, try it out. It might do a very nice job on that. Uh, if you've got a big scope, definitely throw it on there and give it a shot. Um, it's been really, really nice. Uh, Cameron, you've got a question. I've noticed a consistent color fringing in all of my scopes that I believe are caused by atmospheric refraction. Um, what can you do? Atmospheric refraction is kind of tough. Um, imaging wise, you can always use, I think they have like an atmospheric refraction optic. ZWO sells it. Um, I think some other people sell it, but that can help adjust for that. Um, Visually, I'm not sure. I'd have to look more into that, but I know what you're talking about. So, um, but there's an easier way to do it if you're imaging, but visually it might be a little harder. 
Um, so quick things real quick. These are my observing notes. So over the last two weeks or so, I've been observing Mars for fun, but also for this. I've observed it in four different telescopes, um, starting small and going to the largest. Um, not the largest I have, but just the largest I conveniently throw outside. Um, so I just kind of want to give you a rundown of all these just to kind of give you some insight going from what different telescopes are going to offer. So the first one, of course, is the 72 millimeter refractor. This is our Skywatcher Evo Star 72 ED. It's a little ED doublet that we sell. Um, I found that dark detail was actually visible at 70x um, with this little scope, but uh, no ice caps were visible. The ice caps are relatively small, so you're going to need some resolution to see them. Um, I did find the filters kind of helped. Like I said, that neodymium, neodymium moon and sky glow filter from Botter worked well uh, for a scope like this. Uh, you got to be careful with small scopes and filters because small scopes don't have a lot of light going through them and filters do reduce a light throughput. So it's something you got to mess with there. Um, but if I increase the magnification to 120x, which on this scope is four millimeters um, eyepiece on there, it did give me a little bit better view. I was able to see a little bit more darker detail um, and it provided a nice view. So if you've got like a 60 to 70 mil, 60 to 80 millimeter refractor, throw it out there. Um, it'll still give you really nice images. I was actually surprised how well the 72 did for being such a small scope. If it was my only scope, you know, I would be able to see some dark details and, you know, basic features on Mars with even, you know, a sub three inch telescope. It's perfectly doable um, right now. So that was the 72 millimeter. That's kind of my little grab and go, throw it outside uh, setup, but it, it worked well. So just because you have a small scope laying around, don't let that stop you, you know, give it a shot. Um, next one was 120 millimeter refractor. So now we've majorly jumped up in resolution. This was my Skywatcher Esprit 120. Uh, this is our triplet. Um, some the dark details and ice caps were easily visible in a telescope this size at 140x. Um, I think I was using like a six millimeter eyepiece at that point. Um, but if I increase, oh yeah, if I increase it up to 210. Um, the detail really started to come out. Um, I find that if you can get over 200x, it definitely gets the image scale to be large enough. So it's definitely worth uh, checking out um, at that point. So if you can get over 200x, the seeing conditions allow it. And a nice refractor, you know, a, a large aperture telescope might have more difficulty getting up there because of seeing conditions. But the smaller ones with nice optics on them, can, you can push them. Uh, this is where I started to use the Botter Contrast Booster and worked really well. Um, so that's that's definitely something to to give a shot if you've got some filters. If you're starting to push that 4 inch or larger, uh, maybe start messing with some filters and see what that shows up um, and gives you there. Because it can be, you know, probably give you a little bit of, you know, punch into that. So... Um, if you're using a four inch or larger scope, things are starting to get interesting. Uh, ice caps are starting to become visible at that aperture. Um, dark details, obviously easy. Um, and then just kind of play with some filters and magnification and kind of see what you can get out of it. But definitely worth getting out there. 
Moving up the list. Now we're getting serious. Um, so I busted out the Esprit 150 triplet. This, you've never had a chance to look through an Esprit 150. It's a freaking powerhouse of a telescope. And that's actually not just even our telescope. Any six inch apochromatic refractor is ridiculous on planets. Um, they are such a nice instrument. And I don't care if it's ours, Explore Scientific, Stellar View, Takahashi, Tech, Astrophysics, um, whoever. Um, when you get a six inch refractor that's color corrected, the views are awesome, um, but they are heavy. So they're not cheap. So um, dark details and ice caps were easy at this aperture. Um, 175X, no problem for a scope like this. Um, if you can increase the magnification and get higher up there, I was running 262 power at this point. Um, ice caps are easy. More defined dark regions were easy. Um, the view was very nice and clean. The Botter Contrast Booster really definitely helped uh, start to bring out more of that structure and detail that's on the planet, making it a little sharper. Um, to actually take a look at it. So um, once you start to get to six inch apertures, um, you can actually start to push that magnification. You can really start messing with filters. Um, and you're starting to just get that resolution that makes the planet interesting. Um, you know, smaller telescopes like a little 102 Mac would be fine. Um, but yeah, if you get up to a six inch, you know, and it doesn't even have to be a refractor. It could be a Newtonian or a Dobsonian or you know, even Schmidt-Cassegrains are nice because they have that longer focal length. You're going to get a nice image when you get to a six-inch aperture uh, regardless. And then everything above that is just gravy at that point. So to top that off, um, I didn't bring out my biggest scope for Mars, but I brought out one of them. Um, so, of course, I had to break out my C14. Uh, it's 14-inch Schmidt-Cassegrain. Um, Dark details and ice caps on this are obvious. I mean, it, it doesn't need a filter. It doesn't need anything. It's, it's right there. Um, this is with a 21 millimeter, I believe, 186X. Uh, worked really nice, uh, but punching it up to 226 power, that's a 17.3 millimeter eyepiece. The image was very nice. Um, Mars was big. Um, in there as well. I mean, dark regions were easy. You could start to resolve some of the geographical features. So if I had a detailed map, we could probably start to pick, you know, certain things out. Um, clouds were easy to see, um, especially when you start messing out, uh, messing around with filters. Um, ice cap, that, you know, that was easy several telescopes ago. Um, but having that resolution, that big 14 inch aperture, really allows you to have that resolving power uh, getting those fine little details down in there. So the limitation of this size of a telescope is really the seeing conditions. But the Botter Contrast Booster really aids in reducing the glare, really sharpening up the planet disk, giving you nice dark detail in the southern polar caps. And uh, the UHC, this is the scope um, I really found that the UHC really did well on. Um, Dark regions were really easy to see. Um, it actually did reduce um, seeing the ice cap. The southern ice cap was easy. This The UHC filter really did a nice job with uh, the surface details, though. So if you've got, like, um, anything that's probably an 8-inch or bigger, 
that's really where things are going to get interesting. Um, the 14 was awesome. Um, if my 28-inch daub was finished, you could pretty much know I'm going to would have that on there. It's not ready yet, though. Um, but if you've got access to a big telescope, definitely give it a shot. Um, so, uh, but the C14 was very nice. Uh, of course, I just left it outside under a cover because anybody who's dismounted a C14 in the middle of the night when you're tired is not advisable. So, um, but yeah, if you have a, if you've got a good Schmidt Cassegrain or one of our Dobbs or you know a nice big Mac Cass or whatever um, that's eight inches or bigger, it's the images really start to get impressive there um, on what you can see, and definitely don't be afraid to push the magnification there. Um, but do give it some time to cool off and let it acclimate to the night because you know tubes like this big schmidt cassegrains all that air gets stuck inside the tube um so that's going to affect the view uh, as the light goes through all the air inside the tube um that's its own atmosphere inside of the tube so if it's not acclimated um it's not going to be it's going to give you a bunch of weird images also make sure you're collimated um make sure that your your Newtonian or Dobsonian or any type of reflector is collimated. Um, I had to adjust it on here um, just slightly because it was a wasn't given the sharpest image. But once you tweak it, um, it's it's definitely gives you those nice images. So of course the next thing everybody wants to do is how do I take a picture of it? Um, imaging Mars is not difficult, um, but they're just like any planet. There's some things you should probably take into consideration. Um, generally longer focal length is a must. Um, deep sky imaging is almost the polar opposite of planetary imaging. We get a lot of people who call in, they're like, I want to take pictures of the planets and galaxies. Very, very different approach to both. Um, with planets, you need long focal lengths. You need to get that image scale up because they're generally small. Um, so usually you're going to use about 2,000 millimeters or longer um, to really get that image scale up. Um, I think what the image is here, I think these three I did with the C14 with my planet camera, which is out on the scope, um, and just subframed the camera down. Um, but you want that longer focal length to give you the image scale. Uh, don't take your short tube 80, um, you know, 400 millimeter lens and go out and try to shoot Mars. It's gonna look itty itty bitty. You need some image scale um, when talking about planets. So if you can get get that up to you know at least the thousands, and even at a thousand, it's gonna be small. But 2,000 plus um, is what you want. Um, a lot of the images that you're seeing nowadays are probably um, you know, 3,000, 4,000 or more millimeters. Um, most of the images you've seen on this uh, presentation have all been done at 3,000 millimeters or longer. Um, so you need the image scale. Uh, so longer focal lengths are going to do that. Uh, if you have a monochrome camera, I would recommend using that. It's going to give you more control over each channel of colors. And you're going to be able to use some other different filters in there as well to kind of pop the detail. A one-shot color works well. Um, not knocking those, but the monochromes are going to give you probably the best results with the filters. Um, when you're imaging, 
uh, the planets, you probably want a telescope that's at least 150 millimeters or six inch in aperture or larger. Um, Schmidt Cassegrains and Maxitoff Cassegrains are very popular for imaging the planets because they're natively already a long focal length. Um, you know, if you've got like one of our 150 Mac Casses, those are like 1800. Our 180 Mac Cass, which I have yet to use on this, um, is 2700 millimeters. So now you're getting interesting. And then, of course, you know, the popular 8 inch, 10 inch, 11 inch, 12 inch, 9 and a quarter inch. 14, 16 inch Schmidt Cassegrains. Um, those are all great because you've got a lot of aperture and a lot of focal length uh, to get that image scale up for you really, really quickly. So that's why those are generally nice scopes to use. Um, you do want to keep in mind though, um, what I found very, very quickly, even though I have a C14, um, it's a 14 inch Schmidt Cassegrain, a lot of people would say, oh, it'll provide great planetary images. It will, but ultimately the seeing conditions of the night are going to dictate how much you can push your telescope and for my location i found that i cannot realistically support a c14 for really nice planetary images i just don't have the seeing conditions for it that's just how that works um so on average i've seen a lot of people using around a 10 inch uh telescope that seems to be the happy spot for most locations and um, anything seeing conditions have to be taken into account for any size telescope but they really come into play when you start getting to those double digit telescopes like a 10 inch or bigger that's where seeing really becomes more difficult and the one thing with planetary imaging in comparison to deep sky is that seeing conditions are basically that is what's going to get you a good shot of it. It's not how much you spent on the telescope. That can help. But your seeing conditions will dictate how good that image is going to come out. Um, unlike deep sky where it's, I just need to have a clear transparent sky and my image looks fine. Uh, planetary really relies on good seeing conditions. Period. Um, so nice optics help too, but... You can have great optics and crappy scene conditions and that's it so um for example i've had the privilege of going up to the 100 inch um on my, um, ugh, i can't talk on mount wilson 100 inch telescope up there i've looked through it twice um the telescope is amazing there's tons of historic uh stuff up there it's a hundred inch telescope both times I went up there, the seeing conditions were not good for the night. And Jupiter, we had Jupiter in it. I've seen Jupiter better in a C8 telescope than I did the 100-inch telescope. And that's because the seeing wasn't supporting the scope for that. And it had nothing to do with the scope. It just had to be that that night was not favorable for that instrument, for that application. That's it. So nature is going to be the one to tell you what's good and what's bad. Uh, if you've got a shorter telescope, adding a Barlow or focal extender, um, you know, like a 2x or 3x or 4x or 5x, if you want to go nuts, um, is something that you want to check out. Um, a real cool trick for planetary imaging that many planetary imagers do, but um, I see a lot of newcomers not do, is an IR pass filter. IR pass blocks out the majority of the visual actually it blocks out almost all the visible wavelengths of light only allowing ir to pass so that actually gives you a sharper image 
um, and can give you a nice black and white image or maybe if you need to do some kind of luminance uh, shot for a planetary shot but you can see right here an IR pass filter um, works very well for planetary imaging purposes uh, and getting rid of some of the you know bubbly seeing um, so an IR pass filter is definitely worth having uh, so check those out they're not expensive either so if you're into planets um, an IR pass definitely look at them there's different types um, Botter makes a nice one, Astronomic, I think ZWO and Optolong make some too, but they're, they're all out there. But there's different ones for different apertures, so pay attention to where the cuts are. So. Um, and of course, you want a high-speed camera. Um, if you're shooting planets with like a DSLR, I'm gonna, I hate to break it to you, but it's really difficult. Um, what you're trying to do with planetary imaging is essentially freeze the seeing conditions um, we're taking a hundreds or thousands of images basically a video of the planet and we're trying to isolate those fractions of a second where the seeing looks good and then stack all the good ones and get rid of all the other ones so um, having a high-speed camera you know whether it's a ZWO or a QHY or I have a point gray uh, camera that works well um, or even uh, like Slusher on Skyrus or um, forgot the imaging source. Um, all those cameras are great. So uh, you want a high-speed camera to, to really get the best images of the planets. I've seen some good stuff from a cell phone. If you can just kind of click it and you've got a, an, eye, an eyepiece adapter for a cell phone, that works. Um, DSLRs and mirrorless cameras can work. It's just you know that's great if you're getting started but if you want the best images you can produce um, look at like a high-speed planetary camera um, that is the ideal way to do it um, so that's pretty much it for this week uh, real quick I want to thank uh, Christopher Go, Trevor Jones from Master Backyard, Tom, my buddy Tom Palakis, uh, Matt Smith and Sean Walker. Um, all these gentlemen were kind enough to provide images of Mars for us to use in today's presentation. Um, their information, if they have uh, a website or places to go, um, that is where to go check them out. Um, of course, Christopher Go is one of the world-class um, planetary imagers. In One of the best planetary imagers in the world um, is Chris Go. He lives in the Philippines, and all the planets are straight up so he has the ability to have really good seeing conditions of course our buddy trevor jones from astro backyard he's got some cool videos on how to shoot mars uh, so you can go check that out um tom palakis is a good friend of mine he used to um write for i believe it was sky and telescope um i might have that wrong another fantastic observer um planetary imager all around great guy uh that's tom uh matt smith i've known matt for a while uh, Matt um, is relatively new to the planetary game, but if you go to his Instagram, he's also got some YouTube stuff up now on how to do planetary imaging. He's learned very quickly on taking some amazing planetary stuff. So go check him out. He's got some cool tutorials he just put up on imaging the planets as well on his YouTube channel. So go check him out. And then, of course, our buddy Sean Walker from Sky and Telescope. Um, and uh, another shout out to Sky and Telescope. They've been uh, promoting our webcast on their email um, on their email blast. So thanks to them for promoting this. It's been very helpful. And hopefully some of you that have come from there have enjoyed this as well. So um, 
that pretty much wraps it up for this week. Uh, next week actually starts, it's going to be basically a three-part series of the sun. Um, so next week we're going to be talking about solar filters, safe solar filters, how to observe the sun, different types of filters, um, and what all that actually is. We're going to talk about the sun. Um, the week after that, we're going to talk about what those filters are actually going to show us. And then to wrap things up at the end of the month, we're having Stephen Ramsden from the Charlie Bates Solar Astronomy Project and Sunlit Earth on to talk to us about outreach and observing the sun and sharing the sun. So uh, starting next week, we're doing a three-part series on the sun and uh, how to do all that safely without burning your eyes out um, and what kind of cool stuff is out there for uh, stuff like that. Um, once again, if you enjoy these webcasts, you can go to, uh, you can subscribe to the channel first off. That supports us, uh, just just gets the numbers up. Um, you can subscribe. It keeps you up to date with all the upcoming webcasts or any new content that we're going to be uh, putting on. Um, if you have any questions or comments, I don't do concerns. You can throw that one out the door. Um, go ahead and email us at support at skywatcherusa.com. If you've got a question about the What's Up webcast or a topic that you want us to cover, uh, just type What's Up in the title and we'll take a look at it. Um, we're always looking for new ideas. Uh, we're, we're already all booked for the rest of the year. We have all, all the rest of the year is already figured out for all the episodes, but we're now starting to look at, um, uh, the new year, 2021, which is hopefully going to be a lot better than this year has been. Um, really quick, I want to tell you guys, cause we got a little bit of time. Uh, if you've got any questions, go ahead and start typing those in the chat. I forgot to bring that up, but if you have some questions, um, about anything I may have missed, uh, go ahead and throw those in the chat. I'll try to get to your questions. If you've got any, um, starting in November, um, uh, next month, the first Friday of the month is going to be a new a series or a new episode that we're going to do monthly at the beginning of each month and that's basically covering what's up for the month we're going to kind of go through and try to promote things that you can see throughout the month whether it's planets or meteor showers or full moon or some cool galaxies and stuff we're going to kind of try to take you through the spectrum of stuff from beginner observations to really advanced deep sky to challenging imaging targets um, just to kind of promote astronomy more. Uh, what I find happens a lot, um, especially working in the telescope industry, um, is that, of course, we all want to talk about gear. Gear is fun. It's fun to mess with. and But astronomy is still the fundamental thing, and I find astronomy tends to get overlapped a lot. So we're going to try to promote that, um, and that's going to be starting next month. Uh, so quick question. Um, any quick thoughts on EAA for Mars? Um, if you're doing uh, EAA or electronically assisted observing, and uh, I'm not sure what the second A stands for, but regardless, you're basically using a camera to observe. Um, use a fast camera, um, like a ZWO or some kind of planetary camera that does the best for, for the planets. Um, Mars works well. Um, I like using, if it's a monochrome camera, an IR pass, or just a regular red imaging filter kind of cuts down the seeing conditions and gives you a sharper image. So I would recommend uh, using that if you're going to do uh, some electrical 
you know, using a camera to basically observe the planets, I would do that personally. Uh, let's see. Appreciate the largely brand agnostic coverage. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing, uh, we've actually caught some flack about that, actually. Um, so it's really, really just, this is a good thing to cover, actually, really quick, because we do have a couple minutes left. I'd like to make this known to people. Um, <coughs> we understand that we are Skywatcher. We want you to buy Skywatcher equipment, you know, we would like you to be part of our Skywatcher family, but we also understand there is plenty of amazing equipment out there that meets all different kinds of needs. And ultimately, we're astronomers too. We want to talk to those people. We're friends with a lot of people from different telescope companies. We use telescopes from a bunch of different companies um, because it's fun. So why not talk about it um and then i can leave it up to you guys and what you want to spend your money on so if you if you go with skywatcher that's great we appreciate it whether you're here long term or short term or not at all um but the fact is you buying a telescope regardless of the brand is pushing astronomy and the hobby forward period and that's what supports the entire uh hobby and the telescope industry so um we want to be supportive of the entire industry as a whole because this is the hobby we love and this is the equipment that we use and the more equipment that's out there the more great options there are to go out and enjoy the hobby so we try to be you know like i said like was said there brand agnostic um you know we that yeah we just want to be have fun with it so we appreciate you guys uh, being a part of it so that's basically me just being blah, blah, blah um, the last couple minutes. But uh, once again, I appreciate all of you guys being here. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I hope you have a really good weekend. Please go out and observe Mars. It's going to look great the next several weeks anyway, but it looks very good right now. It's the weekend. Um, you might have Columbus Day off. We don't. Um, but go out and view. Um, it's one of the few things you can do from home right now. So uh, definitely go out, check out the planets, um, say hi to Mars. Don't forget to look at uh, Jupiter as well, as well as Saturn. And uh, yeah, just have a good time with all of that. And above all, clear skies. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next week as we start talking about the sun. So thank you very much. Take care and we will see you soon.